welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, and welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shauna St. Terrell. And today we have with us an absolutely strong, tenacious, courageous woman, Arlette Jones-Lawson. Welcome, Arlette. Thank you. Thank you. How How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to have this opportunity. Well, we're so very happy that you were interested in coming Why don't we just start off with a little background about you, where you're from, what you do, things of that sort. I am married with uh, four children and one bonus and two grands. And I was born in Texas, raised in North Carolina and reside now with my husband in Florida. So I'm an adult thriver of childhood sexual abuse. And I can proudly say that I'm completely healed. And that is um, not an easy process for, for someone to, to arrive, for them to arrive to, but. Um, yeah, it's, I think that a lot of people don't understand what a journey it is and they don't understand the full ramifications of a child's life well into their adult years. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? So where did your journey begin? Well, I was molested by my father um, um, over several years when I was a child. And of course, you know, when you're a child, you're innocent um, and, you know, you just thrive on affection. And, you know, and you, you don't understand the different types of attention and affection that, that's being offered. And you look to your parents or adults in your life, you know, to be your protector or your guide. And it's a very confusing time. And I know that I was probably 14 years old when I first, when I told my first person, and it happened to be my stepfather, who was very understanding. It was almost as if he had, you know, heard this type of story before. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he responded appropriately. I did ask for him not to share and he respected that. And, uh, because it wasn't something that was ongoing mm-hmm. at that time. So you were safe. So I was safe, but I think that one of the important things is to, as long as the person is safe to respect sure. their timetable. I think that's and, very important point because for People and children who have gone through sexual abuse or assault, you know, all power and decision-making has been taken away from them. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's important for the rest of us to remember that they should be in control, obviously short of still putting them in any kind of danger. Correct. So Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, you know, the, the leading up to that moment, the fear of disclosing what had happened. It was just haunting. I mean, it was paralyzing almost the fear. 
um, because you don't know what's going to happen when you disclose and you know, and especially if it's somebody that you know or care about, sure. you know, you worry that their life might be negatively affected. It's like you don't view them as as a perpetrator. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that is another very important point that a lot of people don't understand because it seems counterintuitive to them, to them. I think a lot of people look at sexual abuse and it's just black and white. Well, they did this, so they're bad and they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Well, that's somebody that was also their father. And so it, it is so much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and especially during the time that, that I was molested, there was no talk about it nothing was you know out there Mm -hmm. and so the feeling that I was the only one or Mm -hmm. somehow you know either this happened in every household and nobody talked about it or it only happened to me in which case I did not want to tell anyone Uh, the, the guilt and shame that I lived with was quite overwhelming it caused me to um, be paralyzed emotionally mm-hmm. and to be stunted emotionally because I had this secret mm-hmm. that nobody else knew. Um, and, you know, up until I told my stepfather, nobody knew. And then after I told him, nobody else knew. <laughs> so, so, you know, and it wasn't a conversation that at the time I was comfortable having. So after I told, I never talked about it Mm -hmm. again. So when you told your stepfather, obviously your parents are no longer together at that point because you have a stepfather. Mm -hmm. Was your dad still a part of your life? He was. He was still a part of my life. And I loved him. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved him until he passed away, um, Mm -hmm. which complicates things. So complicated. (laughs) It complicates things. And because I had not disclosed to anyone any feelings that I had, I just pushed aside. You know what I mean? Any nervousness or apprehension, I just, I pushed it aside. And I, and that's absolutely normal. It um, absolutely is, yes. <laughs> so you told your stepfather when you were 14, but then you kind of remained silent. I mean, that's a huge breakthrough right there, you know, mm-hmm. the turning point, I'm sure. But what happened next? Like, did it take you some time to be able to share with anyone else? It actually did. Um, It was, gosh, I think I was in my 20s before I shared it with anyone else. And well, that's not completely true. I had written some things down about my abuse, kind of like a journal or a diary. Mm -hmm. And my mother got a hold to that. Oh, wow. Um, when I was 17. And at that point, I had moved away and was living with my father and stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't really understand the dynamics there. Why, why would you want to go leave one place and go and live, you know, with your abuser? And it's because I was older. I felt like I could protect myself. Mm-hmm. My stepmom, who was lovely, I felt could protect me. Mm-hmm. And so when I actually was leaving their their house, I disclosed it to my stepmom in front of my father. Oh my gosh! So, you know, and so it you know, of course, it 
lent itself to confusion on her part because she's like, well, why would you want to come live with us if that if you knew that mm-hmm. happened? As survivors of any type of sexual violation, you know, you deal with the fear of not being believed, mm-hmm. of people doubting you. And it's not that you don't know that it happened because you know absolutely that it happened and the perpetrator knows that it happened. But it's that somehow or another, it invalidates your truth. Mm -hmm. It almost silences you. Mm -hmm. Because then it's, what if I disclose to someone else and they don't believe? Right. And with the culture we live in, again, we've talked about this a little bit. I think it's getting better. We're moving to a better place and there are more Mm -hmm. resources and people are doing better and understanding um, and believing victims more so than I think we ever have. We have a long way to go. Do you remember when the abuse was ongoing? Do you remember, did your father tell you any of those kinds of things? Like nobody would believe you or that it was your secret or anything like that? Do you remember if he did any of those kinds of tactics? No, it was, it was quite loving actually. You know, it was like teaching, you know, I'm going to, you know, teach you or, you know, gotcha. okay. the time that you, you know, get really married normalizing it and just normalizing it. And so, sure. no, you know, I didn't. But there was an element, I think, in me that knew at mm-hmm. some level that it wasn't right, because it was something that that I was instructed not to tell. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, you know, for, for a very long time. And when I was finally almost pushed into getting help, mm-hmm. uh, I was in my 20s and I was about to go home for a visit. Mm-hmm. I literally froze emotionally. I was in this panic and I just, you know, I just couldn't imagine how I could take another step forward. It's just like it all just kind of came down on me. It sounds like your body and your brain were protecting you for a really long time. It got to a point where it's like, okay, you got to, you got to face this. Like we can't do this anymore. I can't harbor this anymore. Yeah. And so I, you know, just kind of opened up the phone book (laughs) and Went to the very first psychologist's name, started with an A, and called. And wow. she was like, well, you know, I have pretty um, booked, but let's talk. And we must have talked for an hour or more on the phone. Oh, wow. And then she said, you know, we booked appointments for when I got back into town. And she was able to talk to me and get me to a point where I could function until I started seeing her again. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, that was pretty powerful. Was that before or after you had disclosed to your stepmother in front of your father? That was after. And did you still that have was... a relationship with them after that happened? I absolutely did. I mean, we visited every year. Mm-hmm. Um, we visited both my parents. Mm-hmm. You say that your mom found out at some point because she read your diary. Did she confront you about it? Yes. At that time, there was a custody battle for me at the age of 17. And it went to court. And she used my letters or my diary as evidence in the case. And when I was on the stand and asked if it had happened, I said no, which is also normal (laughs) and not uncommon. Because when you're not ready to disclose and you're in a position where somebody's trying to force you to, you're going to lie. Instinctual. You're just going to lie about it. And, um, and that's what I did. But, but 
I justified it by saying to myself that, you know, she she's not, it's not her right to force me to talk about this when I'm not ready. And that is true. And so for a long time, I that must have been so hard. Yes, it was it was quite hard. It was quite hard because um at that point I felt almost like a pawn, you know yeah. what I mean? And I and I also felt like you know, I wish that I was close enough to her that I could tell her the truth. Uh, it wasn't until I think I was in my, um, it wasn't until I was in my forties that I had that conversation with her. Wow. Did it become a topic of conversation in the greater family? I don't know if you have siblings or like with aunts and uncles and things of that sort. I disclosed to a couple of my siblings, um, my younger siblings, I did not disclose that to it wasn't my it wasn't my place mm-hmm. um but it's you know it wasn't my place to to disclose that to them they were much younger mm-hmm. than I you know I just think about the added stress and pressure you know not only are you carrying this with you now you feel like you're a pawn and it's cussy about all and everybody knows and it wasn't your choice for them to know Mm-hmm. And I imagine that was just incredibly honest, re-traumatizing. It was actually re-traumatizing. There's a, in my book, in my book, and we'll, we'll discuss that later, but there's a, a story in the book that's called The Pot of Gold. And it is, um, in a nutshell, what happens when gold is being purified is, you know, the, the continuing to have to let the impurities rise to the top as the as the gold is being purified by the heat and uh, typically the impurities are kind of shimmied away and then more impurities rise and it's shimmied until there's no more impurities and it's pure gold and what i found myself doing was stirring so when the impurities rose to to the surface when my issues rose to my surface and i needed to deal with it i took my little tool and I just stirred it right back in because I wasn't ready. But at some point, it so much of it comes to the surface that that you, you know, either sink or swim. And my fear is that too many people will choose to sink instead mm-hmm. of get help. We will talk about your book a little bit more later on, mm-hmm. but I just you have such a great way of with literary comparisons, it's just so spot on the the path to healing, I feel like. And I don't know, I just really loved it. So what happened after you got together with that initial mental health counselor and she kind of got you in a, a good place and you're moving forward? What what did your journey look like from that point on? Well, from that point, I was at uh, the stage where I was, was, you know, just having the freedom to talk about it in a safe place with a safe space person. So I was able to just examine kind of all of my feelings that were, that I was carrying with me that I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. She um, helped shine a spotlight on my issues, you know, and helped me to understand that it's impactful, Mm -hmm. that my issues don't just show up in one area, it affects all areas of my life so that I could understand why some of my behaviors were destructive. Right. And you don't, you know, 
I don't, I think a lot of people have no idea. They're like, I don't know why maybe they're, you know, it, it comes in different ways. Maybe it's alcohol, mm-hmm. maybe it's drugs, maybe it's mm-hmm. sex, maybe it's mm-hmm. food, but these other kind of unhealthy relationships with people, persons, things, whatever. And it takes a lot of people, most people, I think a long time to make that connection that mm-hmm. it comes back to them. I think a lot of people are just like, oh, I'm okay. Yeah, that happened, but I'm okay. Yeah, absolutely. And as long as you're telling yourself that you're okay and not dealing with it, you're just stirring. <laughs> you're stirring it back yep. into the pot until, you know, until the time comes that you think you'll be ready to heal. Absolutely. And it takes work to get to a place where you don't hold the guilt and the shame, where you can mm-hmm. see clearly the truth of what happened and, and that you were blameless. And I think that in any type of sexual violation, a person has to kind of come to, must come to terms with the fact that they're guiltless and blameless. And, and that is a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? I mean, you just, yes. children especially think that what did I do wrong? And I think adult victims too, what did I do wrong that made this person do this to me? And the truth is nothing. You did nothing. Absolutely. And, you know, and you think that as a child, especially, you know, most children, they're innocent. They don't know. They dance around, they prance, they, they all want to be adults when they're children and they're doing all these things that are normal for a child but when they're in the presence of somebody that is not a good steward of the trust Mm -hmm. um then it endangers them and and then it's easy to look back and say oh i was too friendly or i you know maybe i was like hugging up on them too much or you know climbing up on them you know it's like you find reasons why it's your fault you find reasons why something you did caused that to happen. Because of course it couldn't be anybody else's fault but your right. own. Right. It's so difficult. And I think that's getting, getting through that, getting through that shame and coming to that understanding is such an important part of the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a turning point for a lot of people and, and allows you to really start healing. <clears throat> that's one of the first realizations you have to make is this is not your fault. Exactly. And it is a tough place to get to. My saying is, he who owns the blame is the rightful owner of the shame. Mm, that's good. So that it's I mean, not. I always fault. write down, every time I talk to you, I write down little things you say because they're so good. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I cut you off. No, that's okay. No, no, no. And so by saying that, the person that's responsible for this horrific violation in your life, whether you're a child or whether you're 80, you know, mm-hmm. when you're violated sexually, the person that's responsible for that is the person that's to blame. And that's the person that owns rightfully that shame. And Absolutely. so you should be able to release that knowing that that's not something, that's not an emotion that you own. That's not something that you own. And when you can come to terms with knowing that that's not, that doesn't belong to you, it's kind of liberating. It kind of frees you up Mm -hmm. to think about all the the, the other things. Like I own some of my destructive behaviors before coming to a place of healing Mm -hmm. um, because I was an adult. I own 
those things, rightfully, because those were choices and decisions that I made. I made it from a place of hurt and ignorance of sort, in a way of how what happened affected so many things. It affected friendships. It affected relationships. It affected the way I was with regards to my work. It it affected everything. There was so much self-doubt and so much Mm self-loathing and not feeling worthy of being looked looked at in any other way other than damaged. And for sure, it was kind of like a scarlet letter, right? It was kind of like everybody could, everybody just looking at me would know what happened. (laughs) You know, you walk around thinking, and and it makes you want to hide. Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. So, how did you move from that place to the next? I think you were in your 20s or so and you're you're seeing that mental health counselor and you're finally letting go of that shame and um, how did you move forward? Well, I'll tell you, for a, a long time, I would not write anything down mm-hmm. because of how my um, diary was violated. Yeah. I wouldn't put any pen to paper. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And so through seeing my therapist, uh, I was able to get to a place where I could begin to write. And that was actually the beginning of writing my book. And it was a kind of a step-by-step guide. So as I wrote, I healed. And, you know, it's through that, that the, you know, the birth of, of my book. Okay. But it took years. I mean, I worked on this book for over 15 years. Yeah. I think that there's so much value in putting pen to paper or for, you know, kids who don't write things, <laughs> typing it up or whatever. Even when I've seen in court, uh, where victims have written victim impact statements to be read, you know, in the courtroom to their perpetrator, I think that there is some sense of catharsis and just kind of once you let it go and get it out there, it just feels different. Like you feel lighter. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely a freedom in speaking your truth. And I think what people sometimes don't understand, I'm going to call us thrivers, but what Mm -hmm. abuse survivors don't understand is that someone else's belief in our story does not negate our story. It doesn't make it any less true. So, you know, and there's a feeling when somebody doubts our word, or mm-hmm. when somebody, and it, and it makes us almost feel like we've got to prove that we're honest. We've got to prove you know, that we're trustworthy and yeah. that we're speaking the truth. And it's hard for people when they know who you're naming and they don't know that person in the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the biggest hurdles that we as survivors have to overcome is that fear of not being believed. Mm-hmm. Is that fear of not being believed. 
And it crosses over into many areas of our life. Mundane things. Uh, did you go to the store and pick up a loaf of bread? Yes, I did. Are you sure? Or where did you put it? So for a long time, when you don't feel like a person believes your word or believes what you're saying, it affects everything. For instance, if somebody tells you, can you pick up a loaf of bread and you go and you pick the loaf of bread up and you place it somewhere and, you know, your husband says, did you get the bread? And you say, yes, I did. Well, I don't see it. Where, where is it? It taps into that feeling of not being believed. So it's like mm -hmm. everything you say is seeing through, you're viewing it through that lens of nothing I say is believable. Right. And it impacts everything. That's one of the things that is very difficult that sexual abuse survivors or anybody that's been violated sexually will experience is that fear of not being believed. And it doesn't help when the legal system is almost pro-abuser, you know, pro-perpetrator. Like you've got to like, mm -hmm. you know, prove that you've been violated. And, mm -hmm. and it almost feels like, well, how can you really do that? Unless there was a film tape of, of it happening, how can you really prove that? Right. More often than not, the only evidence is the testimony of the person that's happened to. And for whatever reason in this country, our knee jerk reaction is, are we sure? Did she, what'd she do? You know, like, especially with adults, but also, you know, like uh -huh. there's just this, uh -huh. I always tell everybody I've tried all kinds of different cases, you know, murders and robberies and whatever. And I don't know what it is, but once you start talking about sex in any way, people lose their minds and they, they start asking these irrational questions. I can't even tell you some of the crazy questions I've had asked during jury trials of sex crimes, but it is a completely different beast. And it is a valid fear that people won't believe you. It absolutely is. And that's why, you know, we do things like we're doing. You wrote your book. We do this right. podcast because the only way to get past that mentality as a society, I think is to talk about it and right. to make people understand this is way more common than you think. Absolutely. Fortunately, we're in the Me Too movement where people are feeling more comfortable coming out with things that happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago, feeling comfortable disclosing. And, yeah. you know, people wonder, well, why did you wait so long? Well, you waited until you felt safe. That's right. And for some people, that's never. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately for some people, it is never, you know, and that's very unfortunate. It is, you know, and the average age of disclosure right now, according to studies is 52. And I do think that we're moving in a direction where that's going to continue to go down, which is great. But, you know, the laws mm -hmm. aren't caught up with that. In most states, the statutes of limitations are extremely uh, limiting so that I can't imagine what that feels like for a person who's a little bit older and finally is ready to come forward. And then they say, yeah, I believe you, but there's nothing I can do about it. You know, there's mm -hmm. no recourse. We see that a lot of times with, you know, clergy abuse, things like that. Mm -hmm. There's just a whole host of other issues that come with sexual abuse that I think most people do not realize, even a lot of victims, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. no one knows. Why don't we talk a little bit now about your book? It's certainly a labor of love and we can't go too far into it because we're short on time, but I love the allegory in it. I love the way you, you describe 
the healing stages. So why don't you just tell us, like, give us a little bit of an overview of what your book's about. So my book, it's a, it parallels healing from a bone break with healing from any type of sexual violation. I call it the abuse fracture. And it's a step-by-step guide and it literally parallels the bones healing process. Um, there are five stages. <laughs> there are five, thank you. There are five stages of the bone healing process, six with the inclusion of the professional help. But there's the clotting phase, the clotting factor, the inflammation stage, the professional help, the bone pre-production stage, the bone rebuilding stage, and then the consolidation stage. And it parallels every step of the bone healing process with every step that correlates with healing from being violated sexually. And for instance, the second stage is the inflammation stage. And a lot of times when you break a bone, the only way that someone knows that there's something wrong is because of the inflammation, because Mm -hmm. of the swelling. You know, people look and say, oh my goodness, your leg is like huge, you know, and they're, you know, they're (laughs) getting you some help because something is wrong. They know that there's a break there. The paralleling with the abuse fracture is our behavioral change. So when when you've been violated sexually, your behavior is going to change. There's no way around it. There's no way to skip it. It's going to happen. You're not going to be the same. So when someone recognizes that something has changed in your behavior, that's their indication that something is wrong. Something has happened. Something is wrong and you need help. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that there are signs mm-hmm. that they can, you know, observe that are indications that this terrible thing has happened. Absolutely. Some of them more subtle, some of them more obvious than others. But if we can learn those things, then, mm-hmm. you know, we can see them for what they are and understand that what we're seeing is a symptom of something much, much deeper. Absolutely. And that should be their indication to get us help. And I will say that when confronted, especially while it's happening, shortly after it's happened, when confronted with it, we will lie about it Mm -hmm. and say, no, I'm fine. No, nothing's wrong. Nothing's happened. And I think that having people in your life that know you and love you enough to not let that go, to not let you win that argument. Yes. You know, something is wrong. We need to know what it is and you need help. <laughs> yes. So. Absolutely. And sometimes, and that's a hard, long process. Sometimes, you know, it takes people a long time to get there. And cause just like you said, they have to feel safe Absolutely. and that's, that's a steep hill to climb. It is. It is. And with the behavioral change, there are negative behaviors that's associated with our behavioral change. All of it is necessary. Mm-hmm. Any type of behavioral change that we experience is a necessary component to our healing. It's not a place that we can live, like we can't stay there and continue to heal, but it's absolutely normal. And so we don't need to blame ourselves because of not knowing how to get through this until we until we know better. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the things. But One of the things that I wanted to talk about 
This is a stage, this is the fourth stage, and that's the bone rebuilding stage where restoration begins with the bones healing process. And that's far down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like the next to the last stage. And the parallel to that is our forgiveness and joy and how they're linked. It's normal to to be, you know, angry in moments and you know, resentful in, at times and, you know, trying to let go of those negative thoughts and feelings. Those things are released with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And that is like, especially when you're in the beginning stages of your healing, that is like blasphemy. I mean, the thought of having to forgive somebody, you know, the perpetrator is just unimaginable, but it's necessary uh, in our bone healing process. There are a, a long list of people that we tend to withhold our forgiveness from. Mm-hmm. But we need to understand that Liz represents the space between us and our joy. And so it's like forgiveness kind of bridges the gap. And so that's a necessary component. It's absolutely necessary. And it liberates us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I spoke with one woman about that one time who really kind of harbored a lot of ill will and feelings and mm-hmm. negative feelings about it. And it had just eaten her up. She felt that way for so long. And, you know, we talked about whether or not letting go of some of that would actually be freeing for her. And I think that she definitely took it to heart. So just so everyone knows, Arlette's book is available on Amazon. It is called There's More Beyond Surviving Journey to Life. And we'll obviously include a link to it on the show notes. And you also have a podcast though, correct? I do have a podcast. My podcast is with my daughter, my oldest daughter, Constance Fields. The podcast is called Journey to Life, and in that we deal with issues that are related to healing from any kind of abuse, not just sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. but any type of abuse. Our last episode was on our trauma response and Mm -hmm. how our body reacts to trauma, and it was pretty powerful. I haven't heard that one yet, but I, I have listened to some and so I really loved it. And I'm so happy to hear that you guys did an episode on that because again, trauma affects people in ways that you wouldn't think it did. And it affects everyone differently. You know, no two people like they may not necessarily react to something the same way. And so I think that's important for people to understand. And that's another reason I think that people don't believe a lot of people because it doesn't coincide or doesn't mesh with what they have in their head, how mm-hmm. it's supposed to look like. Absolutely. So Arla, um, is there any, oh, go ahead. I wanted to just talk, I'll, I'll try to be brief, but I wanted to, to just touch back on the forgiveness element, mm-hmm. if I could. So there are like three categories that deal with forgiveness. One is forgiving our abusers, which I call the life changers. The other one is forgiving the involuntary partners. And those are the people who, you know, just were caught up in their everyday life and just, you know, didn't notice our inflammation, didn't notice our behavioral change. And they either didn't know or suspected and denied what they, the reality of their suspicions. And then the third group is, um, I call it friend of my foe. And those are the ones that know your story, but continue to have a relationship with the perpetrator. That is the actual hardest group to forgive. The previous group 
um, the involuntary partners are easier to forgive and the easiest to forgive is the perpetrator. And you, mm-hmm. you, it doesn't sound like it makes sense, but it really does. And so the forgiving the friend of my foe, like I said, those are the ones that continue a relationship. They know your story and yet they still continue a relationship. And, and oftentimes it can feel like a massive betrayal, mm-hmm. but the reality is that they didn't experience that person in the same way that you did. Mm-hmm. And so their truth is very different from yours. And just like their decision to continue a relationship based on their experience, we as abuse survivors have to respect that. Just mm-hmm. like we want them to respect that this has happened to us and you know we have a right to our truth. They have a right to their truth as well. But that, you know, a lot of times siblings fall into that category, kind of like you can have the same father, but different daddies. Yeah, I mean, being raised in the same house and it happening to one child and not another. I've, Mm -hmm. we've seen that tons of times where it's really torn families apart, especially if the perpetrator won't admit what they've done. And then you've got the other kids in the family saying, well, it never happened to me. So she has to be Mm -hmm. lying. Absolutely. And that's really harmful and hurtful. And then once they believe you and they still decide to continue a relationship, then you really feel, you know, betrayed because it's almost like you want everybody that knows your story to be like outraged and just, Mm -hmm. you know, angry. It doesn't always happen that way. Well, I imagine it makes it feel like it didn't matter and Mm -hmm. that it wasn't a big deal. I mean, that's a whole different kind of pain, I feel like. It is a different kind of pain. That is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to forgive that group of people. Yeah. Because the abuser or perpetrator, they know what they did. They know the truth. And you know the truth. You know they know too. So yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's not, you know, you don't feel like they don't believe you because of course they they know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I did want to say that I think that one of the things that that I think would be very helpful to survivors or loved ones of survivors. One of the things I think people should consider, especially for parents and family members, is to be careful about what they post on social media regarding children. Because they may think their intention is not to sexualize that child, you know, prancing around, dancing to whatever music, but, you know, making these little, you know, moves that kids will do trying to mimic adults. Uh They may not think that they're sexualizing their child, but others may view their posts very differently. And the perpetrator may be aroused by viewing your post and they may not be able to get to your child, but they may have a targeted child in mind that they do have access to. And that person, that child may be their next victim. So I think that we have to consider that. That is such a good point. I can't tell you how many times I've been scrolling through social media and saw things that are, they're innocent. They're innocuous Mm -hmm. to that person. Mm -hmm. And it made me absolutely cringe Mm -hmm. because I thought of all of the abusers who are watching that and they're saving those videos and maybe spreading them between themselves. And you have no idea. You just think it's a cute moment with your child. You absolutely do. And the child doesn't know. I mean, 
and it maybe it is a cute moment, but I would I completely agree with that. Keep it to yourself, then you know you have to keep <laughs> yeah. it on your phone, save it down the road. You can go back and see how cute they were, but don't yeah. put it out there for everyone to see because you no. truly don't know who all is going to end up seeing it once you do that. No, and you don't know who's going to be victimized as a result of seeing it. Exactly. There was a study done recently about child predators who uh, the query was if they are if they look at images, are they less likely to act on it? Like, is it something that's going to placate them? And the answer is no, (laughs) it does not satisfy their desires. In fact, it usually inflames them. It absolutely inflames them. It does. It does. It's enticing to them. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like like an alcoholic being in the presence of folks that are just drinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's going to be something that it taps into that says, I want that drink. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. That's so t- yeah. temptation. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to make sure you say before we sign off for victim survivor survivors or their loved ones or professionals to know? Well, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I've received was, and I read this was tell your story. If people have wanted you to write or speak warmly about them, they should have behaved better. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's on them, not on you. Absolutely. Um, Okay. So we end the show, every show with three questions. The first question is what does courage mean to you? Courage means to me facing your abuse fracture and committing to the process of healing, Mm -hmm. you know, the commitment to get better. And it's hard and keep Mm -hmm. going. Yeah. I like Mm -hmm. that. We kind of just answered this one, but you can either elaborate on it or tell us another one, but what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? To elaborate on that, um, get to a place where you know you own your story. It's, it's yours. Nobody has the right to affect how or when you tell your story. But you need to get to a place where you can tell your story. And, and it may be just writing it down, just for your eyes only, until mm-hmm. you find a safe space person that you can disclose to. But it's your story, so tell it and be authentic about it. You know, And it's your truth. And yes, it may negatively impact the perpetrator that, that abused you, but that's on them. That's on, and it's part of their story too, Yep. but that's on them. And if they had wanted you to, to write or to speak warmly about them, then they should have made better choices. Absolutely. That's a good, good point. And lastly, what is one question that you wish more people would ask you? There are two kind of two parts to that. The one question I wish that people would ask me is, would you help me heal and uh, tell me more? There's an analogy that I heard years ago. This man was walking down the street and there was this, he's walking on the sidewalk and he wasn't paying attention. He was on his phone, not paying attention. And the, the street, the sidewalk was caution taped off and he fell into the hole. He wasn't paying attention. So he fell right into the hole. Well, he's in this hole and he sees this clergy walk by and he's like, hey, Rev, can you help me out? I fell in the hole. And the man thought, well, he's probably going to need prayer. So he pulled out his pad and he wrote a little prayer down and he folded up and threw it down the hole and then he just kept going. And then shortly later, he saw a doctor and he's like, hey, doc, I fell down this hole. Can you help me out? And the doctor's like, oh, well, he's probably going to be hurting. So he took out his pad, his prescription pad, wrote a prescription and folded it up and threw it down the hall. And then shortly thereafter, one of his friends walked by and he's like, hey, Joe, I fell down this hole. Can you help me out? And then Joe jumps in. 
to the hole. And he's like, Joe, I didn't need company in the hole. Uh, <laughs> I needed help. Help me get out of the hole. <laughs> and Joe says, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But I've been here before and I know the way out. And that's what I hope people I recognize. That is that I'll offer a way out. You are so good at that. <laughs> you are so good at telling a story a certain way and the parallels are just spot on. I love it. Thank you. And the question that I, I wish that others would ask us, those of us that have been violated sexually, is what do you need? And you need them to recognize your inflammation. Yeah. Because it's there. It's, it's just, you don't know. It's just not like, just like you said, it's not necessarily the legs falling up when the legs broken. Mm -hmm. It may not be that obvious, but it's there. The signs are there. That's absolutely true. Well, Arlette, thank you so much for coming on today. I have so much admiration and respect for you. I think that what you're doing with your podcast and your book and your work in general is so important because just like we talked about earlier for people who are going through this now to know that they are not alone is so powerful. And the only way for us to actually make change in this and, and get this to stop happening and put these and hold these people accountable is to talk about it. Absolutely. And I thank you for affording me this opportunity and, and others and, you know, devoting your life to making this an important issue. Well, it's truly been my pleasure to have you. So thank you so much to our listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. We thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.